Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. Today I am here with Scott, the Director of Product Management, and Russell, the SVP of Innovation and Product Management from WebPT. Scott, why don't you start us off by giving us a little overview of your personal background, and then we can have Russell go next. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, hi, everyone. My name is Scott. I'm a Director of Product Management at WebPT. Before WebPT, going way back, I'm actually a doctor of physical therapy by trade. Uh, went, to, went to PT school, spent uh, all that time and money getting that PT education, and then uh, stopped clinical care pretty much immediately after graduating and started a technology company. Ran that for a number of years in, in Boston and joined WebPT almost four years ago now and joined the WebPT product team after the, the acquisition with WebPT. So uh, I've been looking at patient engagement and how we better connect providers and patients through technology for uh, the better part of the last 10 years. Hey, everybody. I'm uh, Russell Olson. I'm head of product at WebPT. I started my career actually uh, in electrical engineering and then I went over and did financial audit for a while. Then I about 15 years ago, I got into a startup in healthcare, and I've spent uh, the last 15 years doing everything from uh, quality reporting to complex care management for diabetics. I spent some time at Watson Health uh, doing some really interesting things there and part of the formation of the Watson Health Business Unit. And then about three years ago, came over to WebPT and uh, lead the product portfolio here. So talk to me about WebPT. Can you give us a little overview of what WebPT does in the problems you're solving? Yeah, yeah. So the the history of WebPT, I was you know co-founded by a therapist you know who looked at you know all that she was doing on paper and thought that there had to be a better way, <laughs> and uh, there was. And so you know it was one of those you know really awesome stories where you know the she was looking to solve her problems, solve them, and it just resonated and and just had that perfect market fit. Uh, you know the documentation, the system, it kind of had the the mental model of a therapist. And so it resonated really well and, and took off. So, you know, our, our mission statement is around helping uh, rehab therapists achieve greatness in their practice. So giving them the tools, the solutions to put into play so that they can better engage with their patients and ultimately help people recover and, and get back to, you know, living better lives. So it's, uh, it's been a really great story. So we do everything from scheduling to billing to documentation. We have, I think, about 5,000 home exercise videos that we allow patients to, you know, engage with their care on. We have, you know, a whole suite, as Scott mentioned, the tools that uh, he helped create around engaging patients and re-engaging them in their care. And we even have an e-commerce place where the physical therapist can buy physical goods for their practice. So just kind of pretty much anything and everything that, uh, you know, a rehab therapist would need to deliver care. Awesome. Thanks. Now, talk to me about this last year, because it it had to be uh, an interesting year for WebPT, right? The world's taken a big turn. It's definitely shown in the software space. How has COVID affected your product roadmap in the direction of WebPT, you know, over these last, well, now we're working on what, nine months? 
Yeah, it's, it's weird to think it's been nine months. Yeah, um, you know, the, the data tells a, a pretty interesting story. And we were, you know, climbing up into the right and, you know, took a, a hard cut down. It's hard to give physical therapy when nobody's coming into the practice. <laughs> so, you know, we, we saw a, a really significant, you know, drop in users. And we have a lot of a large portion of the market using our software and, and pretty much, you know, people stop seeing patients, which is the lifeblood of, of their practice. And so we saw a pretty nasty dip and strike down and, you know, and internally. So as you start looking at that happening and looking at our revenue and, and how we sustain our business, we start looking at how we're supporting our, our users and, uh, and our employees and really, you know, started looking at, we did not want to lay anyone off. Uh, we didn't want to do any furloughs. We had no idea how long this thing was going to last. And so, you know, one of our first jobs was to make sure that we uh, didn't have any layoffs and, and didn't do any furloughs. And we were able to accomplish that, obviously, by cutting back and basically eliminating anything that was uh, non-essential for us. So that was, um, that was how, you know, what, what happened, I guess, when we, when we hit that dip. And, you know, Scott, can, why don't you talk a little bit more about kind of from the roadmap perspective and yeah. what happened. So, so to set the, the stage, this year's roadmap was a really important year for our product. We've been, you know, a company for the 10 plus years now, and we have, we're, we're really about on the precipice of launching some major new advancements to our tools and some, some really big product relaunches. I think every one of our products was undergoing some form of a relaunch in 2020. And so in some respects, it was the worst possible time to have to quote unquote pivot a product roadmap. Because we had some very, you know, well-articulated goals, the product vision and the product direction was directly tied to helping support those goals and objectives. And so for us, what was a really big part of this was figuring out how do we open up capacity and make smart decisions about opening up capacity to address the new evolving market need. And while at the same time, not allowing that to cut into the product roadmap and the product vision itself. I think we were successful in doing that. And so... A big part of kind of what changed overnight, as Russell alluded to, and we all know, is the delivery mechanism for care changed. Again, essentially overnight. Everyone went into various forms of lockdown. People stopped going to, to PT. And so the sort of core delivery model changed and we needed ways to support it. And as a product manager, it was one of the most fascinating situations ever because we all know how long organizational change takes. And we had been surveying sort of digital care delivery methods for a long time. And we had been kind of had the plans to work on them in our back pocket for a while, but they never were common. Um, and they were never common enough for us to kind of go down and make a big, you know, development investment in these areas. But yet overnight, almost every practice switched to having some form of telehealth, which is just such a fascinating, cool, cool, radical shift. Um, so we knew we were going to continue to be successful and, and meet our mission statement, again, as Russell said, to help rehab therapists achieve greatness in practice. We had to help them support these new delivery methods. And so a lot of what our roadmap focus ultimately ended up being was figuring out what is truly important, what is not important right now, what can we sort of cut from and shift around so that we can continue to execute on our, our key priorities um, and keep those going while at the same time still open up some capacity to explore these, these new tools. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. You know, big shift to telehealth. I, and I imagine it was a slow shift before, but then all of a sudden, like, you could maybe see, like, in, in four or five years that there's going to be a big shift to doing more and more remote. But now all of a sudden, it just jumps up, right? Instead yeah. of, like, 
you know, there's two telehealth visits a quarter. There's now 2,000 telehealth visits a quarter. Talk to me about how, how, how nimble you had to be to adjust and, and to help your customers, you know, deliver on that. Yeah, I, th- I, th- well, I think it was interesting. I mean, personal story, I, I think last, uh, it was October or last December, I, you know, like Scott said, we're always kind of dinking around and playing around exploring telehealth. And I, I did a virtual visit with a doctor and it was horrible. <laughs> it was, it was a really bad experience. I think I got the wrong diagnosis. I ended up having to go to a, to a in-person doctor and that's, you know, so there's all sorts of challenges. And then you throw into the fact that physical therapy, you know, most of it's hands-on, right? So it's, it's uh, part of the, you know, the fundamental delivery mechanism is in-person. So you know, as I started to look at that as, as COVID hit and we all, you know, went home and, and hunkered down at our houses and everyone is remote, you know, we started looking at this and, you know, we didn't know how long it was going to last. Is this a, a one month thing? Is this a, a forever thing? You know, and then the other thing going through my mind was, well, are we, is this a fundamental pivot from the roadmap? Are we shutting down these projects that, you know, we've been working on for years in some cases that we know long-term are the right things to do? You know, so we started kind of going through this. Well, we we started out by saying, well, we're just here's some recommended people that were already doing telehealth and things, and just you know, you should go sign up with them. Then that kind of evolved of like, well, what if this thing doesn't go away, and what if this is a fundamental shift that we need to, you know, we want to enable our our users to have the best experience possible, and you know, integrating and kind of sending them off to some third party is maybe not the right way to do it long term. And then the other thing kind of not in the back of my head, you know, when you launch a product, especially one that you might have thrown together quickly, there's issues like things don't work. And especially if you add the component that you are touching the consumer, right? So it's one thing if I'm delivering this to a business and, and it's kind of within this confined restraints, they're already using the software. We already have, you know, minimum screen size resolutions, technology. But now when you open up consumers, like who knows what technology they're using and I think my one of my biggest fears was, yeah, we slam something out, we get something out there, and we just create a support nightmare for the organization. And it's worse than if we hadn't done anything at all. So, but at the same time, I didn't want to sit there and do anything at all. So that these were all the things kind of, you know, rolling around in our heads as we kind of went through this process. And Scott, you know, jumped yeah. in. Well, yeah. So when we surveyed our members, as Russell said, it was exactly at first we were like, hold on, we need to figure out how we can shuffle things around. So here are a couple of partners that we think would work. But the more and more we talked to our end users, we realized they had major workflow problems. They were using, in some cases, four or five different tools to handle things like patient communication about the visit, patient scheduling, the actual video visit, communication, and then a follow-up. And then they had to use our tools to document those sessions, perform billing tasks, collect payments, all those things that they were already doing. And while it was amazing to watch everybody adapt and quickly find solutions, there was a huge dissatisfaction in the market. Add on top of that, as Russell said, they couldn't treat with their hands. They're trying to learn how to change their whole method of what they went to school for years to do and have been practicing for years. It was a major change. And so what we realized pretty quickly was if we built an integrated workflow, one that tied into the tool set that they were already using with WebPT, but we did it in an intelligent way that to Russell's point, allowed us to potentially partner more effectively to de-risk some of the the technical risks. We felt really confident that we could deliver a strong product for the market. We could deliver it quickly and provide a lot of value. And so that's sort of what we we set out to do. 
Yeah, but there's a lot of challenges in that, right? I mean, you're you're moving in your it's a whole new motion. I mean, you had a normal 10-10-10 approach, right? Which this is probably now you're moving to more shipping small in an instance like that. Is that right? And can you can you explain what your normal approach is and if I'm right on the shipping small side? Yeah. So I mean our, our yeah, just to back up our our normal approach is we ship software. I mean, we have about you know over 90,000 users on the site daily. We're releasing code weekly. So, you know, there's a lot of change in it. People don't want to wake up every morning and have something different in their system. So the way we, our normal process is what we call the 10, 10, 10. So the first 10 users or 10, you know, physical therapy clinics get a, get a piece of software, a feature. We make sure it's working. We iterate, we get the feedback. Then we go to the 10%, uh, you know, so it might go to, a, you know, 1,000, 1,500 clinics make sure operationally it scales that the operations, you know, enablement is there with training materials and all that. And then once, you know, and we don't have any hiccups in the infrastructure, and then we go to the last, you know, hundred percent as the last 10. So, you know, that's our process and, you know, and Scott can walk you through it, but we didn't change. We just did it faster. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So we, we had a couple of things that worked to our advantage. So one, Moments of crisis, and I will say kind of when this initial first wave happened, it really was definitely rallied people together. And so one of the hardest things about shipping products is organizational alignment. This is probably one of the rare instances where we had immediate 100% organizational alignment from our CEO down to the support rep that had been there for a day. We all knew what we had to build and what the stakes were about getting it out. So that helped streamline things and allow us to go faster. But what we also were able to do was utilize high-fidelity mock-up. Because again, the product surface area was relatively small in how it worked. So we were able to build both a, a quick prototype as well as you know some of it was code, some of it was just design only. Circulate with that with the company over a couple-day period, get meaningful feedback about approach and direction, and meet with the individual stakeholders across our organizations so within about a two to three day period of kind of that launch week that we ultimately started doing this, we were able to take activities that normally might have been staged out and overlap them on top of each other. So, you know, we probably spent two to three weeks ahead of the initial like, yes, let's go do this, really making sure we understood the technology, knew the approach, had the alignment from the high level of the organization on down. And then we basically hit this seven-day window where what we did is we kind of met with each of the cross-functional groups around the company. We said, here's what we're building. And we knew that from the engineering projections, we could get that first milestone shipped within a seven-day period. And so essentially what we did is over that seven days, we got alignment of the entire company while we were building the actual product. A few changes came in based off of those kind of early feedback. And this also included reaching out to some of those first 10 members that would get the product. We were able to iterate a, a few things in terms of workflow while the, the engineers were still working and then progressively work up to make sure that we had sort of the cross-functional collaboration necessary to ensure that all stakeholders were informed, understood what was happening and what the timeline was going to be. And by the end of that first week, we had completed all of our development work and we had trained the entire company about what was coming and everyone kind of had an understanding and agreement that basically then what we were able to do is the following week, we started our 10-10-10, except, you know, instead of taking, you know, maybe a month or <laughs> two months sometimes to go through it, we went the first 10 on day one and day two, 10% on day three and day four. And by Friday of that following week, we were at 100% rollout. 
So again, I think strong organizational alignment, strong understanding of sort of the mission behind the product and what it was going to be allowed us to take our normal process and just condense it really tight. Now, does this have ramifications for your normal process timeframes moving forward, or is this an exception? You know, it's uh, it's interesting. And one, and one thing Scott didn't mention is we also changed the sales model. <laughs> <You're> right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, not only that, but we knew we wanted to get out to, to many people. So we enabled a self-sign-up model, which was our first time doing that. So, you know, to your question, you know, I've, I've pondered a lot since that seven-day, you know, sprint, if you will, you know, how can we do this more often? <laughs> and, you know, there's a lot of factors that have to come in, you know, to galvanize the team and to, you know, have a clear, a clear mission to accomplish something, but it's absolutely something that we thought through and, and, you know, looking at how we can, what lessons we can take and apply and what lessons probably only worked in, in maybe that scenario and, and might not work so well for, if we're trying to apply that again, I, I wouldn't want to spend seven days and, and rewrite the billing app and uh, try to, you know, mess with uh, payments with payers, but definitely some process. And it really is, you know, when we have tight alignment, a lot of these things go faster and easier. Yeah. We wrestled and I both joked at the time where I was like, man, our CEO is never going to let us do a slow rollout again. Was, <laughs> we showed what was possible to the whole company, but in many ways, I agree. We had extrinsic factors that made a lot of the really hard things that go along with launching a product not hard in this one instance. And so I think it it highlighted the importance of various areas of the product development and release process. Um, it highlighted the importance of alignment and what it takes to get there. Um, I think it highlighted the importance of a shared understanding of requirements and what the final deliverable is going to look like. And it uh, definitely shared the importance of various parts of the process, such as the cross-functional collaboration um, to ensure all stakeholders feel heard and, and have weighed in. And so I think it's allowed us to refine our internal processes so that there's better success in how we launch and roll out products. But yeah, the, the getting to that that timeline is, is going to be challenging, I think, in the future. But hopefully we've, we've seen some productivity gains for sure. Yeah, I want to I want to dig into a couple of things you said there. One of which was, you know, uh, feedback, right? Because customer needs are changing immensely during this time. I'm sure you're getting a ton of feedback, and you're fitting them into a really tight process. And you probably got conflicting feedback, right? Uh, so, how did you navigate through all that in this tight process of rolling this out? Well, uh, Russell, I, I've got a couple of ideas, and I'll let you chat about anything I may miss. So, for us, what I tend to find is in areas where you get a lot of feedback, the first step. Um, to try to prevent them from becoming just complete bottlenecks that block anything moving forward is to make the scope smaller. Because on a small enough and small enough project, you can tend to get to consensus on what that should be. And then you roll those conflicting points into sort of future iterations and where you look to expand. So for the case of this product, I know I presented Russell and our, our CTO a flowchart of sort of holistically what this process should be. And we all laughed. No, we all knew there was no shot when we were building all of it. But it was important to say, okay, here are kind of all the various touch points where we think this could go in the future. Now, here's what we're going to actually build in a very, very narrow slice of that. And so, you know, for us, I think that the priority is make it smaller so that you can get something that you can ship. And the, at the end of the day, the product's going to speak for itself, whether it works or whether it doesn't. And those things are going to rise to the surface. So, you know, ship small, iterate, get some data to support those those conflicting points. I think usually is the best way to win those arguments. But yeah, Russell, I'm curious where, where you're at with it. Yeah, I think, you know, if we bookend it, it was, it was an incredibly difficult decision to kind of disrupt our plans and to pull people off and go tackle this. 
you know, not knowing all the uncertainty that was out there. And once we got the initial delivery, it was almost just as a difficult decision of, well, well, how far do we go with it? You know, do we, is this now a new team, a new product line that is going to live on forever? Because certainly, you know, there was an argument that uh, there's a new norm and, and we need to have a whole different skill, you know, set of tools, or do we, have we delivered what we needed to and do we get back to our other projects and that was a really difficult decision of, you know, how, how far do we go? And I think the the feedback loops were important to let us know that, okay, we had done enough. You know, there was some operational cleanup that we we did a little bit after. And in fact, we just did another, another little round uh, just recently. But we decided that it was working. People were using it. It was delivering the value. We didn't see any issues with, you know, NPS scores or, you know, feedback from people that were uh, using the product. And we decided that, uh, you know, it, it was good enough. It solved the problem. And now we can get back to some of the other projects that we knew we had to solve that were more important. So, yeah, it was you kind of bookend two very difficult decisions. Do we start and, and do we stop? <laughs> yeah, it brings up an interesting question. Uh, do you see telehealth for, for PTs becoming the norm or at least a much more significant piece of their business than it was prior to this? Like, is this a, is this a change in how your target customers deliver their services? So I'll let Scott dig into it as, as the physical therapist, you know, in the background in any way. Uh, I think my perspective is there's definitely a digital component that has changed. So, you know, one of the other things that we haven't talked about is we also launched a digital intake product that we'd actually been working on for, uh, fortunately, we've been working on for almost a year prior, but it enabled it, you know, and almost, you know, not entirely touchless, but definitely facilitated, you know, getting rid of some of the clipboards and paper and pens that now people are looking at really strangely. Nobody liked them to begin with, but now, you know, they've got an extra factor of what's touched that thing before I touched it. <laughs> so we were able to also bundle in not only the, the virtual visit and the, and the telehealth experience, uh, we had some, you know, digital intake tools. And then also on the billing side, we haven't talked about, it, but there's a lot of changes on how you build insurance companies and which ones were allowing it and which ones weren't and how you had to, how you had to bill it. So we are able to kind of, you know, adapt and adjust. And I think, you know, some of those will, will live on, some of those won't. And, and Scott, I, you know, you can opine on that. Yeah, you know, as people in technology, we tend to believe that technology is going to solve every problem. And so I think that that would be a potential fallacy here as well. I don't think you're going to see 100% digital therapy being the norm. No, um, no, definitely not 100 yeah. but... Before I imagine it was less than 1%, right? It was, it was about, it was, yeah, it's between two and five. So what you're going to see in my belief is a continued move towards hybrid care models. So if you think about a traditional course of care and therapy, I may have acute onset of some issue. That acute onset might require, you know, highly skilled manual intervention. And it's advantageous for me to receive that early at the beginning of my course of care. In that case, we're not going digital. We're going directly into clinic and we're going to manage that care well there. The other side of it, though, is there's many conditions that don't require hands-on care at the beginning and they can be delivered remotely. And so at the same time, I know I've talked about this a lot, there's been almost a half a billion dollars invested into the digital therapeutic space around musculoskeletal conditions. And those are changing the standard of care. Those are 100% digital. So if you talk to those companies, they'll tell you, yeah, I think that's where the future's going to be. 
I, I think we'll land somewhere in the middle. I think it's going to all come down to consumer preference. When we survey patients, we're hearing a lot of patients who want to go back to the clinic, interestingly enough. And that could be because the, the digital tools are starting up to par and they aren't good enough yet. But it could also mean that, you know, people do prefer. Physical therapy is a fascinating industry because while it's the most common and most costly health condition in the United States, not just the U.S., actually across, across the globe, um, one in two adults every year will develop a musculoskeletal condition that could be treated by a therapist. Only 10% of those patients actually show up, end up making it into care with a PT. And so it's woefully underutilized on top of all of it. So I think that digital tools have the potential to build conduits to tap into that broader market and provide care um, in more meaningful ways. And I think that you'll see traditional therapy groups start to adopt some of these tools as they become available and more prevalent. But right now what we're seeing and we saw with our usage patterns on the telehealth tool was when lockdowns are occurring, telehealth use rose. When lockdowns were coming down or, or people were allowed to go to clinic, usage dropped. And so, I, you know, I think the way that the traditional therapy industry will, they will continue to use this somewhat, but it'll be largely a, an alternative traditional care. Right? They'll probably go back to traditional care in most cases. So just curious, from two to five to what? From two to five percent to what? What do you think? Yeah, so it depends on who you ask. The, I think the APTA survey, and it may have these numbers slightly off, but it went to basically they surveyed our, our professional organization for all the therapists. They surveyed the, the organization and found that like two to five were actively practicing any form of telehealth. And then in the midst of COVID, it was up like north of 60 percent. So it got, got very, very high. And a number of smaller practices, unfortunately, closed down because they just didn't have the means or capacity yeah. to, to manage those swings. But again, when, you, when we survey our, our member base, I know when I made calls to sort of as many members as we have close relationships to, every single one of them, it was closer to 100% at some form of a telehealth program in place. So it, it really was a, a radical shift. And everyone I talk to now tells me they're going to continue to support it, you know, but they're still, I think they're, they're, they have a preference towards in-person care when possible. Got it. Got it. So we're going to see a big bump from two to five, at least for part of the services delivered and, and based upon consumer preference, but we're not going to get to that hundred percent, you know, digital anytime yeah, soon, forever. Probably never, but we'll, we'll see how that. So, so another thing you, you mentioned, I wanted to get back to, you know, in this case, you had top to bottom alignment really quick, right? So that wasn't a hindering factor at all. So there wasn't as much work to do inside your organization, getting alignment around the shift of, of product direction. But that's not always the case. So tell me what a normal case is like. How do, you, how do you ensure that alignment to accelerate product development normally? And what did you learn about the process you went through with this big you know, shift with COVID that you're going to apply moving forward to enabling uh, better organizational alignment? Yeah, yeah I think sure. uh, a couple of things. You know, the, um, what, what did make it difficult, so we had some existing things in place that, that enabled that we leveraged, so I'll talk about those. But I think what, what was difficult is normally you would have uh, thrown everyone into a room and gotten on the whiteboard and, and hammered it out. You know, instead, everyone's calling in on Zoom and kids in the background and personal fears going on. And so it was just it was a really interesting time to even drive alignment you know, one of the things we put into place uh, early on was uh, this concept of a, a shared group of people that are collaborating on the product. So it might have different names, you know, we call it a product council, but the, the concept is that you have a cross-functional group of people that are actively engaged in the product. And, you know, it's often facilitated and, and coordinated by the product manager, but it's not, uh, you know, it's not a top-down, it's really a collaboration. So you'll have somebody from 
maybe your onboarding team, your support team, your sales team, uh, marketing, all in there talking about the product. And so we, we'd, we had that kind of concept and that structure in place in the organization. And so when this thing came about, we, we spun up a new product group around this, this problem that we were solving. And, and really the concept there is that 360 you know, feedback, not only does it drive alignment, but it also surfaces, hey, somebody's going to ask the question about, well, how, how is this getting into Salesforce and invoicing? Like things you might not be thinking about, you know, as you start to launch the product or, or how are we going to turn it on or, or how are we going to message it? So, you know, having that cross-functional team, you know, all present really helped catalyze that alignment. And that, that is our normal process. Again, a lot of this wasn't, um, we didn't do a whole lot of things abnormal. We just did them a lot faster and you know, just in an accelerated manner. Yeah, and it sounds like it was easier to reach consensus in this case too, because of the dramatic, you know, impact of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and I would say there there certainly was a lot of debate, right? So there was debate of whether we build this, you know, all natively ourselves, whether we partner, whether we white label a solution, or you know, there's all sorts of debates on, you know, whether we should even do this at all. So there's lots of debate and a lot of discussion and a lot of passion, <laughs> I think, into into it. And I think usually um, if I were to kind of compare this to like maybe a normal project, I think a lot of that debate and passion sometimes happens behind the scenes or happens, you know, offline. This one, I think a lot of it, you know, happened, you know, real time uh, all on Zoom. And I think that um, I think it was actually more healthy than, you know, where you might have had a lot of pre-meeting conversations or a lot of discussion around the meetings or after the meetings I think the, the fact that we were very passionate kind of in the meeting and in the moment, I think drove alignment faster than maybe, you know, traditionally how, how it's done. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree, Russell. I think it was, it was because of this, the stakes and the time frame, the disagreement was very productive, you know, it happened early and in plain view and, you know, allowed us to sort of, in any case where we disagreed and moved up, like we were able, all, we were all able to move on. I think the biggest disagreements were, as you, you touched on before, is how long do we keep working on this and how far do we take it? And the benefit here, as I said before, was we were able to show the data, right? We we're able to say, hey, this product is resonating. We're accomplishing what we wanted to accomplish from this product. It is okay where we are. And, and we remember, we do have bigger organizational goals that we don't want to lose sight of. So yeah, for sure. Yeah, one of the one of the metrics we looked at was, and that I was personally really fearful was, we've got patients using this solution now, right? What happens when the patient tries to get on the virtual meeting with their therapist and can't, it doesn't work. Like they got an old phone or an old browser or something's, you know, not working right. Are they going to call us? <laughs> Are we going to, as our support team, going to now have to open up to every patient that calls in? So, you know, one of the things we tracked early on and, and kept really close tabs on was, well, you know, what, what's the support? You know, are the therapists calling us because they can't get their meeting started and they're, you know, they've got a patient waiting for them, or can the patient not get online? So, you know, one of the factors for me in, in feeling better about this was we really didn't have a lot of support issues come in. And that was that was a sign for me that it was working really well and people were buying and growing, the product was growing. So, you know, that I think looking at the data and understanding how we can leverage the data to help us validate maybe our feelings and our and our thoughts. So talk to me about success. Like, how do you measure product success in, in this case and in general? How do you decide on your North Star metrics? How do you iterate on them? Yeah, so I'll start high level and then Scott can jump in on, on maybe this one specifically. I, I say in general, you know, we, we have our, our North Star around, you know, helping rehab therapists achieve greatness. And then under that, we have BHAG goals about, you know, how do we get our solution in the hands of every therapist and, and every patient that they treat 
you know, and then from there it gets into metrics around growth and, and profitability and, and other areas. And so one of the ways we look at it is, is looking at, um, you know, there's long-term metrics around growth and products and sales and support and churn. And so those metrics are kind of there and, and in the background, but they don't move unless something's really wrong. They don't move, you know, drastically. So in, st- in a kind of short term, we look at initiatives. So we're going to improve this experience or we're going to, re- you know, reduce these costs or fix these errors. And so we'll go through a process where we say, well, here's what we're going to do over the next X period of time and the metrics that we're going to look at to see if that worked, which are proxy metrics for maybe the long-term customer churn or, or growth metrics that, you know, take a little bit longer to understand if they're moving in the right direction. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, you know, as, as Russell said, that once we get down to the product level, when working with product managers on our team, we are trying to figure out what is the product specific metric that's going to drive the area of the business that we're hoping that product's going to drive. I mean, at the end of the day, everything's going to relate back to, is this helping you sell more? Is this keeping people from churning? Are we reducing some organizational costs? But you can basically work the trickle down to understand where these, you know, relate to the product and, and you know, can you have sort of product specific North Star? I know for this particular product line, it was really simple. We knew that this was, we, we definitely cared about the revenue opportunity. We did know that there was money to be made here, but we also really just cared about utilization because what we were seeing was as people closed their practice, they weren't using our software, they were calling up and churning. You know, we don't have long-term contracts for the majority of our users. So this was really important to keep them keep them in business and keep them running. And so, you know, for us, we wanted to see what was, the, you know, the North Star in this product was first and foremost sales. So we wanted to see kind of the, the unit volume that we were selling. And then the second was we wanted to see vis- both visits and visit minutes. So we were looking at how many virtual visits were being performed on a daily basis. And then how long were those visits taking place for to make, to make sure that we were, they were sort of falling under the normal, you know, either 30 minute or 60 minute kind of uh, visit time. Um, and so that's what we, we kept a close eye on and, and watched those grow really steadily. So obviously this, uh, you know, rapid development is a great example of innovation, right? Talk to me about your approach in general to innovation and experimentation. We'd love to hear it. Yeah. I mean, I'll, I'll start and Scott does a lot too. So, so you can definitely add in my, my theory and I guess approach to it is, I guess I, I think about gardening and the, the law of the harvest. <laughs> I've very rarely uh, seen something just be slammed out and, and be amazing. Right. So, you know, some things grow and evolve and mature at different, you know, rates and timelines. And what I've seen not work for sure is that you just wait and then all of a sudden you try to do it all at once. And so from my perspective on, you know, innovation, experimentation, it's really about having lots of things, you know, growing in the garden. And, you know, if you have enough things growing at different rates and you're experimenting on them, you're learning, then you'll have stuff maturing, you know, at at a regular pace that, that the business will consume and sustain but, you know, there's a lot of stuff you might work on for, for years and might not go anywhere. <laughs> and, and then you got to, you know, understand when it's time to stop as well. So, you know, that, I guess that's my approach and I always have something, you know, cooking in the kitchen and uh, going. And then I guess on the innovation front is, you know, sometimes it takes, you know, stepping outside yourself and understanding, well, maybe, you know, are we the right ones to solve this? Has somebody else already solved this problem? Is there, a, you know, is it really a partnership and not a build? And, you know, really just kind of evaluating all angles. And Scott, you want to? Yeah, yeah, no, totally. I, you know, I think one one just important framework that I think is good for anybody we've had to sort of set at WebPT is the knowledge that innovation is going to take time. And so, quite frankly, many of the things that end up on a roadmap every year 
are innovation projects and we probably won't see benefits from them, right? Business line benefits could take a little bit, could take a, a year plus till those, those seeds turn into, you know, full harvest that we can understand the importance of. At the end of the day, though, I think the projects relate back to what can we do to increase confidence in an idea or concept? And so and specifically, I think an important tenet to innovation is what we did with Virtual Visit with this particular product launch was how can we increase confidence quickly and cheaply so that we know that we should invest more um, in this area of innovation? And so what we're sort of always poking around on is, you know, what can we man in the box? What can we test? What ideas and concepts can we start to test and iterate on well before they ever get expensive and require R&D effort? or require, you know, big multi-year projects to complete. If we can increase confidence around a certain concept, an area, it allows us to build a stronger case for, you know, where we go next. So I, I think that's really the, the foundation of, of innovation here at WebPT. Now, using your, your garden analogy, Russell, you, you talked about, you know, knowing when to stop experimenting or, or you know, prune an experiment or maybe uh, pull the plant out, so to speak. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you, how, how do you figure that out? When do you know? Yeah, I, I, uh, I wish I had a perfect answer. If you, if you look out in my garden over here, you'll see a, a tomato plant that's half dead and half alive. And I'm, I'm debating, do I pull it or do I, do I leave it in there? You know, it's got, it's got three tomatoes growing, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave it and see if it produces more. But uh, honestly, I think that's the hardest part. You know, as I've, as I've done this for years, you get an idea and, and to get an idea off the ground, it takes a lot of passion and energy and investment. And I've debated myself for a long time. When does that passion, energy, investment blind you? You know, in some cases it's good. You need to be blinded because sometimes these things don't make sense. <laughs> and, uh, but that, you know, when does that blinding, you know, become detrimental? And I think for me, it's, you know, it's going back to the data and looking at the metrics. Like initially you got to give enough space to grow. You got to let it, curate and get its own feed and you have to protect it in that phase. But there does come a time where, you know, it's been long enough and if it's still not producing or you're not getting the growth that, that you had hoped, then you do need to take a, you know, a hard look at it and say, well, is it time to invest that energy somewhere else? And so for me, it just, it, it really goes to setting up the key metrics of, am I expecting growth? Am I exp expecting sales? Are people paying for this? You know, if, if you ever get in a situation where you you might have to get away for free to the first one to you know go in with you, but if if you're giving away for free after the third or fourth or maybe even the second, that's that might be an indicator that you know you're not quite there if you're not producing value. And I guess that kind of maybe is the, the the simple answer is: Are you producing value, and is that value enough to be sustainable? And it, sometimes it takes a long, hard look in the mirror to to answer that question. Yeah, I think it's the hardest question in product management for at least one of because it's, I totally agree, Russell. You're so, especially as a product manager who founded an idea or has been the initial advocate of the idea, it's, it's almost impossible uh, to, to be the one to kill it off. Sometimes you need, you need a friend to come in and do it for you. But the only other piece that I would add is I'd say the time to kill off a project is when there are bigger priorities with bigger opportunities that this project is taking away from. And, you know, I think always being able to assess the potential value of a project and both the pluses and the minuses, right? Doing every, every single thing we do ultimately comes with some trade-off. And being able to articulate and understand those trade-offs is such a key to ultimately communicate and agree upon whether something's going to continue or not. So I, I think that, that'd be the only thing I'd add. 
Well, thanks. This has been great. As we're kind of getting to the end, I thought I'd turn the questions to, you know, more of your, more of you personally. So I'm curious to know what, what are your favorite products? Maybe you can go first, Scott. Sure. I have to think about this for a while. So I'll do a work product and then a non-work product, not paid to endorse either of these. My favorite work product is an email client called Polymail. I was a huge fan when Dropbox created their product called Mailbox. It's one of like, speaking of killing off product lines, I, I would love to see the case study for why Dropbox killed Mailbox. But it sort of revolutionized how I managed email. And so Polymail is a great email client that I, I get a lot of similar value from. And, and it's, again, changed sort of my workflow and how I engage with email. Uh, and as somebody who builds... Uh, in part, email marketing automation software, I both realize the blessing and the curse that is email. So anything that can can help you uh, not let that own your life is, is good. So I like Polymail a lot. And then on the side, I, I really enjoy uh, playing music. And I, for a long time, lived in very small apartments in cities. And so needed to, uh, couldn't bring drums and pianos and electric guitar amps around. So did, started to do a lot more on my computer. Um, and there's a company called Output that makes awesome music production software. And my favorite of all of their products is a product called Arcade. And basically it's a very simple application that is a, uh, they actually turned it into a SaaS product. And it's, again, you basically pay a, a monthly recurring uh, license for, and they keep making it better and better and adding more sounds and these just like fascinating sort of creative inputs that you can mess around with. And I enjoy it so much because it makes the process of being creative and expressing creativity it sort of gives you like this really fun starting point where you sort of dial a bunch of knobs and press a button and then you're off in a new direction. And I think anything that can foster creativity is an amazing product. And so I'm a huge fan of, of that for sure. Yeah, I, I would say uh, for me, uh, it's, it's Legos. I think, you know, fell in love with it when I was a kid. Um, it's a product that's endured time, right? Over, you know, they found ways to stay relevant and alive and the logo of, of Star Wars and that whole thing. That, you know, it's a fascinating story, but I think fundamentally it's, you know, some pieces that, that are sold today and that are in the sets today are the exact same pieces that were used, you know, back when I was six years old and, and building things. And I think it's a fascinating concept of something that uh, you can follow a set of instructions with no words, you can create this kind of amazing looking thing. And then there's an infinite number of combinations that you can take uh, thereafter. And I think, especially in today's age, it's all about the combinatorial evolution of things where, you know, we're, we're often building using, you know, building blocks from other people. So for me, it's, it's, it's gotta be Legos. So your, your favorite Lego creation, like what's the, the favorite thing you ever built or yeah, so I still have it. Um, there's a, a space station that I got when I was a little kid, and uh, you know, it launch it opens up and launches this little you know spaceship. And uh, yeah, I still I still in fact we rebuilt it over COVID. We got out all the Legos and divvied them up and and got out all the old instructions. And uh, I've got four boys, so you know we spent a lot of time in COVID uh, building Legos and, and rebuilding and, and enjoying those memories. Awesome, that's awesome. Well, one final question for you both. Uh, three words to describe yourself. Oh, man. You want me to go first, Russell, or you want me to go? Go for it, man. <laughs> uh, all right. So I would use, and think about this a lot. So I would use idealistic, because I think in many ways I am an idealist, much to probably Russell's frustration at times. The second is pragmatic, because I think I've had to learn to be pragmatic. I think pragmatism is a really important balance to idealism and to be a good product manager if you're unfortunately really pragmatic most days. 
And then uh, the third would hopefully be collaborative. It's one of my favorite things that I love to do. Uh, and it's probably the most important thing for me in, in my role. I love collaborating with people to solve problems. So uh, those would probably be the three ideas. Yeah, I'd probably say uh, empathetic is, you know, probably the first one that comes to mind. I, I, I do best when I understand, you know, what I'm solving and, and kind of feel the pain of the use case or the persona. So definitely strong passion around empathy and, and understanding. I think curious. Uh, I love to take things apart and, you know, rebuild them or, or just understand how they work. And uh, I think passionate, you know, I get really excited about, you know, if I, I've got to be really excited about what I'm doing or else it's, you know, it's just not worth it. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you guys both. This has been highly enjoyable. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, of course.